This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. And today, in this episode, we're going to be answering questions. I put out a call for a sort of ask me anything sort of deal um, a couple weeks ago. And I've received a lot of questions. I think when I counted them up, it's like 30 or 40, something like that. So this may turn into two parts. We'll see how long uh, it takes me to get through some of these. Some of these are very sort of in-depth questions or if not in-depth questions, things where I, I tend to, you know, just sort of keep talking. And editing's hard, right? So we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you, just off the top, for everybody who sent in a question, whether it be on on Twitter or Instagram or email or or Facebook or or the Patreon or or wherever. Thank you so much. Um, it's it's always nice when I don't have to. Um, worry about making up questions to make it look like uh, people sent things in, which I've I've never done, but it's always in the back of my mind that, okay, I've got a, got a couple of, of questions here that uh, that I can use just in case. So let's go ahead and get started. Okay, let's get started. I'm taking these in uh, in roughly chronological order, as when I uh, when I received them, uh, that seemed like a pretty reasonable way to do it. Um, we start off with a question from I think this was an Instagram DM, um, but my screenshot cut off the name, so I'm very sorry. Uh, I don't know whose question this is, but there's a couple of really good questions here. First, what if Henry Wallace had ended up as FDR's VP for his last term. Ah, now this is a good point to mention that I am just taking these as they come. I've looked through them. I've thought about them. But um, if you are really sort of asking me questions, and this is a sort of like if we were sitting in a room, you asking me questions sort of thing. um, If I'm not familiar with something, uh, I'm not going to, you know, Google it beforehand and pretend I know about it. Um, so there's there's that. So there might be some questions in here where I'm like, I'm I'm not familiar with that case at all, but I will check it out. But I am a bit familiar with Henry Wallace. So sort of thumbnail sketch of Henry Wallace. Um, huge pioneer in the early 20th century, um, into the 1920s as a, a pioneer of scientific Agriculture gets involved in politics when um, FDR appoints him as Secretary of Agriculture during the 1930s. He ends up being um, Roosevelt's vice president during his third term. So that would be the the 1941 to 1945 term with the election being in, in 1940. But Wallace was um, was pretty progressive 
And um, the more conservative Democratic Party bosses weren't too happy with him um, and some of his positions, particularly on on foreign policy and things like that. So uh, he sort of pushed out as vice president during the, uh, the, the the run up to the 1944 election in favor of of Harry S. Truman. Um, Roosevelt has some some loyalty to Wallace, though. So um, for that last term, appoints Wallace secretary of commerce. Uh, Wallace would end up resigning sometime in 1946. This is after Truman had become president um, because Wallace believed that Truman was taking too hard of a line against the Soviet Union. Wallace hooks up with some other people as part of a progressive party, which is urging uh, things like a, a more conciliatory foreign policy and broader social benefits, desegregation, things like that. There are some concerns that Wallace is, if not explicitly connected to communists, at least um, a, a, a useful dupe for them. Um, when the Korean War breaks out, Wallace um, sort of snaps back to a more harder-lined and, and realistic um, view towards the Soviet Union. He he exits politics, abandons the Progressive Party, and uh, and and returns to to writing and working in, in agriculture for the rest of his life. He died in sometime in the sixties, I think. Now, as far as like political stuff with Wallace, if Wallace had become president when. Um, Roosevelt died in, uh, in in the spring of forty five. I think the biggest thing is, is is Wallace would give away the store in in Eastern Europe um, to, to Stalin. I am fairly positive that's an, an uncontroversial thing to say. And uh, you, you can, I mean, there is the argument that that Truman kind of gave away the store. Um, but what were what were we going to do? So it was kind of a realistic thing to just sort of acknowledge. Okay, we're we're, we're not in any really position to try to kick the red army out of eastern europe right now that's that's not gonna that's not gonna work um i think as far as his uh his progressive domestic policies go i think wallace would have run into even worse trouble dealing with congress than truman did truman tried to push uh his his fair deal which is an expansion of the new deal and, and prefigured uh, johnson's great society in a number of ways um but but re republicans in in congress and and a lot of Democrats weren't playing ball, so I, I think I think Wallace would have it, it, it would it wouldn't have been a successful presidency. I, I don't think, as far as a president being able to shepherd a set of policies through Congress, um, and I think he would have lost if he tried to re, re run for election on his own in 1948. Now. What does this have to do with flying saucers? Well, it's interesting. One of the criticisms people had of Wallace or one of the concerns was he was deeply interested in um, in esoteric matters, particularly particularly theosophy. And he was a fan of, oh gosh, it's a Russian theosophist, uh, Nicholas Rorsch, Roch, something that starts with an R. I can't remember. But um, this guy – was had some interesting ideas. Did a lot of sort of pseudo diplomatic work in um, in in Tibet, uh, trying to create a sort of Asian state that would be where he was told by the ascended masters that would be the new Shambhala or something like that. Uh, at one point, um, he was convinced he was uh, he was the Dalai Lama. Uh, so so Wallace was. Um, <laughs> 
was, was sort of fascinated by by theosophy. And um, so if Wallace is president in 1947 when UFO stuff kicks off, that's an interesting thing. Um, I, I think what would happen to his foreign and domestic policy is, is pretty clear, at least to me. But um, I'm really interested in the idea of, of how Wallace would have dealt with the UFO thing, or, or if he would have at all. Um, would his interest in esoterica played a role? Um, I don't know. It's it's pretty interesting. I Like I said, I, I'm not an expert on everything, um, as much as I like to pretend I am. But um, if any Henry Wallace scholars out there know if he had any reaction to UFOs at all, I would love to um, – love to hear about that. So also, second question here from this listener whose name I cut off. It's fairly clear you are pretty skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Fair. What cases have made you wonder or reconsider this position? Um, I think I think Pascagoula a little bit, maybe. Um, Pascagoula. Uh, just because of the the bizarre nature of it, if that ended up being some kind of extraterrestrial thing, it, it wouldn't surprise me too much. Um, oh, what's what's another one? Gosh, it's it's difficult because because I'm ah, I, I really am kind of, and I, I I admit this, kind of stuck in if it is a weird thing, it's uh it's an extra dimensional thing or it's it's something like that. So um every time I think of a a prominent sort of UFO case that clearly isn't, you know, the planet Venus or probably secret aircraft or a lie, um, I always sort of say, well, where's the line between something that's alien from space and something that's alien from some other plane of existence. Um, but, uh, but Pascagoula always stands out as, as that, that if those were aliens, I could pretty much, uh, I could pretty much buy that if somebody were to present compelling proof, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. Our next question comes in via email from Jeff who, who asks, how are you doing? Um, I'm okay. I'm, 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 I'm as okay as you'd think with everything that's been going on. Um, Good days and bad days. Some days are not good at all. Um, and so, you know, I'm getting getting behind on stuff sometimes. Um, you might notice a little irregularity in the release schedule. Nothing, uh, nothing, nothing drastic. Um, yeah. So, but no, no. Um, yeah, getting along, getting along, one day at a time. See uh, the cliches go. Um, thank you, uh, Jeff, for your concern. Next question via, uh, via, looks like Instagram, uh, Taylor asks what UFO case or incident or contactee story would make the best episode of Dr. Who? Oh, this is, this is a good one. Um, that is, that is a really interesting question. Um, and I, I, I sort of jumped to, to contactee stuff, uh, because the, the, the show didn't really do that kind of, uh, that kind of story. Uh, Claws of Axos back in 1971 came closest with like seemingly nice aliens offering, um, offering new technology to, um, to the government of, 
of the UK and, and, and the rest of humanity. Uh, that one gets closest to feeling like a, a contactee story. I think what would be a really, really good one is if they, um, sort of, sort of did a riff on Valiant Thor. Uh, you could you could transplant it to the UK. There's there's this humanoid alien who comes from somewhere else and offers all of these things. Then it turns out it's it's some sort of elaborate scam or it's the master or something. But I, I think some kind of um, the doctor, maybe unit bringing in the doctor to um, sort of advise them about what this person is telling them. I think that could be a, a sort of contactee story launching pad for a decent episode of Doctor Who. Um, apologies to non-Doctor Who fans out there uh, for that uh, sort of excursus into Doctor Who stuff. Toby, uh, I think this came to me through Twitter, says two questions. Okay. Can you do a show on Jacques Vallée? Ah, that's interesting. It would be interesting to do a Jacques Vallée show. Um, I think, it, I'm not sure one show would do it, quite a, a sort of range and variety of stuff that he's written and said and worked on. Um, so I, I think looking at it uh, incident by incident or book by book might be um, might be a good way a good way to do it. I think at one point I talked about messengers of deception way back years ago in a, uh, a read these books installment. Um, but but yeah, definitely there's room for some long form Jacques Vallée stuff. Uh, and question two, is Jeremy Corbell the biggest toolbox in UFO history? Um, yes, yes. I, I, I can't, uh, I can't argue that. That's uh that's a good call. Next, uh, Tim also through, uh, through, um, what's it? Twitter says, uh, number one, maybe with some smart snark, which era of flying saucer, UFO, UAPs were are the biggest grifters? The con contactees of the 50s, the missing time of the, uh, the 60s abductees, the emergence of reemergence of Roswell in the 70s, the Greys and communion of the 80s, alien interviews in Area 51 of the 90s, or the government insiders of the past 15 years or so? Um, I think from... From my perspective, and I, I don't have access to financial records or anything like that, but it seems that right now there is a lot of there's a lot of money flying around, and I think this disclosure stuff is is a money generator because you can keep it going on very little evidence, very few actual stories. You can just sort of keep pounding the drum for this and and trotting out old things and and regurgitating stories and tropes and things from the previous 70, 80 years, and you're able to keep it going. So although it might not be a, a literal grift on the level of, um, of a Reinhold Schmidt, um, it's definitely, it's definitely the, I think this is the way I see it. The, the, the m way to make money with saucers, that is the lowest effort one that we've seen um, because so much of it is just sort of sort of repurposed stories from uh, from 
previous decades. Uh, number two, regardless of question one, because I really want to believe, how much credence do you give the impending anticipation of true disclosure? Um, I want to believe too, and I give no credence to the in impending anticipation of of true disclosure. I I don't. I, I think the claims and the talk of it is a way to gin up interest in various things and and eventually separate people from their their money. Um, I I think the way to keep looking at this is by focusing on uh, individual experiences and individual stories and and I think realizing that um, that disclosure is when disclosure happens. It won't be from a government agency. It will be on a, a personal transformational level, which is sort of, which might be the most sort of ephemeral and doofy thing that I've said on this show in a long time. Uh, but uh, but I, I think it is. I, I think this sort of idea of there's going to be a big announcement that uh, the aliens have been here since I don't know Mussolini. Uh, found something in 1933 or whatever. I, I I don't I don't see that happening. Um, at least not within the current paradigm of what we think of as disclosure. All right, we have an email here from Savior of Koldas, Destroyer of Janos. Um, excellent. Um, do you ever get particularly disappointed in any mindset present in the topic, and how might participants in the conversation avoid that path? For example, reliance on conspiracy, rumor, new age, etc. Um, I think I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but I am so tired of the disclosure, government whistleblower, um, we're going to have hearings, blah, 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 over and over and over again. And I think that the reason for it is that it's, it's unoriginal and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of lazy. And it doesn't entertain me, um, and and th this is this is you know flying saucers should be entertaining, um, at least I want them to be entertaining for me. Um, and how might uh, participants in the conversation avoid that path? I think um, the more people know about the history of this so-called field, the more they will realize that there is very little new coming out of the disclosure movement and the disclosure movement itself it dates back to the nineties. It's, it's close to 30 years old at this point. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't new. This isn't particularly different, um, in, in significant ways. But if you are, if your first exposure to the UFO field is, hashtag UFO Twitter or YouTube or the podcasts that uh, the big podcasts that that sort of circulate these stories and promote them and 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 recycle them um, you'd come away thinking that that new and exciting things are happening I get I get texts and and emails from people I know in the real world um, who who are like have you seen the story about you know Skinwalker Ranch or um or Bob Lazar or something like that. And it's, you know, it's easy to get frustrating when people don't know the history. I don't really have a problem with, you know, person in the street who sees a news story, not knowing the entire history of UFOs. My frustration comes from people who 
who believe nothing of interest happened before five years ago, and therefore they don't need to uh, to, to look into that. Uh, second question from uh, the savior of Koldas and destroyer of Janos. Do any abductions stand out to you as interesting in the same socio, eco, spiritual, historical way that your contactee cases do and why? That's interesting. Um, that That is interesting. I I would say um, if it counts as an abduction, Antonio Villas-Boas, um, absolutely. Um, the uh, – oh, oh, I can't remember her name. She uh, she did the storybook, the, the um, Cito's New Friends book. Oh, I can't – her name is just, is just slipping out of my head. Leah Haley. And, and I will admit, I – paused recording to go look at my bookshelf to make sure about that. I think Leah Haley's experiences were interesting in the sense of how it's it sort of she she sort of goes through this process of trying to learn about these things and it's so tied into how the UFO community and organizations like MUFON were trying to to deal with and understand the uh, the abduction experience at the time. I th- I think her stuff is really interesting and then drifting into the the Millabs thing, which I, I always find sort of, um, sort of fascinating. I, I think, oh, I, I don't want to say Streber, but I don't know. You know what? I'm not going to say Streber because the question is stand out to you as interesting and Streber stuff doesn't, I, I communion does the one book, but Streber's entire sort of career, I, uh, I don't know. He's just retire, man. Um, so just personal preference on that. But uh, I think Antonio Villas-Boas and um, Leah Haley's stuff sort of sort of speak to me in a way that that makes me feel like I'm reading something a little bit different than you know the stories in whoever's big book of abduction tales or something like that. Um, oh. Um, 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 oh, what is her name? Carla Turner, Carla Turner. Um, I think her stuff is, I'm, I've haven't finished reading all of her books, but I, uh, I, I find her experiences and her reaction to them and the way she processes them to be, um, really interesting as well. <laughs> If you like The Saucer Life and want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. Patrons get the episodes before everybody else, and there are a few pieces of bonus content every month. Um, right now, there's a lot of stuff up there from the last uh, the last year and a half. If interested, uh, you can check it out at patreon.com slash cheesomedia or via the link in the show notes. And you can check out past episodes at saucerlife.com or your favorite podcast app. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can also contact us by post at cheesomedia, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. All right, let's get back to the questions. All right, Brian emails us with, um, oh, yeah, this is, this is a long one. Um, question one, 
A, which of the following Roswell crash explanations do you think is the most likely to be true? And then there's a list of, looks like 13. Um, let's go through all of these. A, extraterrestrial spacecraft as expounded by Stanton Friedman et al. B, weather slash skyhook balloon. C, nuke sensing balloon. D, Fugo balloon, as suggested by John Keel. E, advanced Fugo balloon array tested by the U.S. Army, piloted by Japanese POWs and deformed children, as proposed by Nick Redfern in Body Snatchers in the Desert, and to an obnoxious extent by Douglas Dietrich. F, experimental flying wing aircraft, possibly utilizing a radioactive isotope as its source of fuel, piloted by deformed teenagers and sent to deliberately crash in the American Southwest by Joseph Stalin in order to panic the, the populace and destabilize the U.S. government, as described in Annie Jacobson's Area 51 book. G, staged event or PSYOP, a la the plot of Bernard Newman's 1948 novel, The Flying Saucer, which I have not read and really need to. Um, that's me saying that, not, not Brian. H, Nazi flying wing or flying disc aircraft piloted by escaped Nazis, as described in Joseph Farrell's Roswell and the Reich, although based with zero acknowledgement on research and work done by Jerry E. Smith prior to his death. I, Advanced flying disc aircraft based on captured Nazi flying disc technology manufactured by the Brits in collaboration with Canada and the United States, as described by Renato Vesco in Intercept But Don't Shoot, as well as Donald Kehoe in The Flying Saucers Are Real. J. Advanced flying disc aircraft based on captured Nazi flying disc aircraft manufactured by the Soviets. K, material manifestation of humanity's collective unconscious, as suggested by Carl Jung. Um, L, material manifestation of demonic deception. L, university-related practical joke. Or M, university-related practical joke. N, time travelers slash girder-bending delivery robot from 1,000 years in the future. Okay, most likely to be true. Nuke sensing balloon. I, I I think that is the simplest explanation for for something that would have been real at the time, might have crashed, and might need some clumsy, ham-fisted, badly done PR to try to cover up. That's that's just my opinion. So that was one A. One B. Same question, except this time, which explanation is your favorite and why? Oh, my favorite. I, um, I think my favorite is probably, um, oh, always been, um, I've always been a fan of that Joseph Stalin thing that this was some sort of Soviet psyop. I, I just think that's that's just lunatic enough to be to be interesting um, and and fun. And it is my favorite, not one I, I, I believe or think there's any proof for um, or accept. So so the uh, the Stalin one is is my favorite. Uh, question 2A: Ancient aliens related Mary a uh, date Mary kill. David Hatcher Childress, Giorgio Sukalos, and Eric von Daniken. Um, man, I'm not super familiar with, with Childress's stuff. Um, I think I would probably, um, date Eric Von Daniken 
marry Giorgio because he's probably got loads of money and, uh, I don't know, kill David Hatcher Child- Childress uh, because, um, <laughs> I don't know, um, because uh, because for some reason he stopped sending me those cool magazines and started catalogs parading his magazines, and uh, and they cost too much money now. So, two B part two of the date Mary kill. Oh, David Wilcock, William Henry, and George Norrie. Oh, God. Um. Okay. Uh, Mary Norrie for the same money related reasons as in the previous question. Um. Date David Wilcock and kill William Henry. I um, William Henry's appearances on Coast to Coast and Dreamland and whatever um, always always sort of make me very agitated. So um, yeah, so that would be uh, that would be that. And a uh, a final question from Brian. Um, it's a two part question. Uh, Brian's getting his money's worth out of this. John Keel indicated that he believed most of the contactees were telling the truth or at least describing events that they perceived to have been real. Seemingly, even Reinhold Schmidt, despite Keel's acknowledging Schmidt's fraud convictions. You read his books from you read his books from the 60s and 70s, and it seems like he believed or accepted almost all everything people told him. I mean, he didn't go full Timothy Good, but for example, his serious investigation of the little man of North Carolina slash UFO humanoid photograph. So that's the setup. 3A. Um, so the, the photo ended up being a doll wrapped in tinfoil. 3A. Do you think Keel was at times overcredulous? Um, uh, I, I have no evidence for this, but my impression has always been that Keel defaulted to a little more credulousness because it made for a better story and better stories sell more articles to magazines and sell more books. Um, it's difficult, at least from what I've seen. Um, I, 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 Keel's one of those guys where, where you're not, at least I'm never really sure what he actually thinks about some of these things. Um, and what, makes a good story or, or makes an interesting story better and more, um, for, for want of a better word, more commercial. I I think when, um, a few years ago we looked at the sort of discrepancies and changes and, and alterations between his notes and correspondence about the Mothman thing. And then what actually ended up in the Mothman prophecies, I, I think he was very good at taking the bare bones of something and, and crafting, um, an interesting narrative. And I think that's why, you know, his work has persisted, um, despite flaws, his work has persisted as being, as being popular. Um, so I, I, I don't know if he was overcredulous, but I think he leaned into a credulous perspective in service of the work. Uh, 3B, are there any contactees who you think actually experienced some of the contact experiences they described, or at least legitimately remembered having had some of the experiences they described. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I have always thought that, that I don't know what he experienced, but Orfeo Angelucci, I really think experienced something and interpreted it the best, uh, the best that he could. I, um, so that one, that one's definitely in the something weird was going on area. I think, um, 
oh, that that's that's the big one for me is is Orfeo Angelucci. Um, the others, I'm I'm not really I'm not really sure about. Um, but but Angelucci was just so so earnest in the things that he wrote. I um, I kind of think I, I uh, sometimes I wonder if Adamski did experience something that inspired him to go down the path he went down. Um, I have no evidence one way or the other, of course. But for me, the big one, uh, the big one is Angelucci. Okay, Stuart from the Patreon asks, do you ever think that the government is going to hire some well-known ufologists to tell the general populace who have just gotten into UFOs that there is going to be no disclosure and no explanation to any of this and to stop bothering them because people have been through this cycle already? After all, there are people who have been studying this thing for decades and people might listen to them more than a government official, apart from the ones who will just assume that the ufologist is in the government's pocket. I may just have answered my own question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I uh, I agree with your own self-answered answer there. I, I think um, I'm not okay, here, okay. Here's another thing. I, the, the, the well-known ufologist that would all the ones I can think of that would be, you know, prominent enough to to sort of make that kind of impact. I, I don't. I don't think they they would, um, and I'm not sure who has that kind of impact or or stature as a ufologist as opposed to a UFO promoter. I think the perfect figure for somebody with at least a little UFO credibility to to be that person, if 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 he were convinced that. There really was nothing going on. Would be would be Stanton Friedman. I think that would have been the perfect person. But as you say, um, the the true believers will always assume that the ufologist has been suborned or blackmailed or was um, was was a, a government double agent from the very beginning. Um, Another issue with hiring a ufologist to tell the populace that there's no disclosure is that uh, – well, it's the populace who have just gotten into UFOs. Um, again, it goes back to who would be a good person for that? Um, the, the, the newbies the newbies are going to have you know different ideas about who has credibility and who does. Ah, this, is, this is an interesting, interesting question. I don't think it would work. But now I'm sort of stuck on the idea of who would be the ideal person to be a government spokesman saying, nothing to see here, everybody go home. Um, wow, I'm not sure. That's a, that's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that one um, going forward. Steve emails with some questions. How difficult is it to keep a sense of humor when dealing with some of this stuff? Some of the ideas floating around must frustrate you at times. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to stop harping on my hatred of the disclosure movement now. But, but yeah, that one's uh, that one's frustrating. I, I tend to keep my sense of humor by trying to to refocus on on the types of stories that I find more entertaining, and also um, through private conversations with, uh, with with colleagues, in which we, we laugh at a lot of these people. Um, no, I'm not going to tell you who the colleagues are, and I'm not going to tell you who we laugh at. Um, also, who, in your opinion, is the most underrated Doctor Who? Um, that's a good question. Underrated. I, uh, I, I think that... Um, I think William Hartnell 
I, I think the, the original because it's the black and white stories without the big monsters. Um, so the, the Patrick Troughton black and white stories, lot of lot of love for those. And then Troughton came back three times in the show um, during that during that uh, original run. Um, I, I think Hartnell's stories are are less seen especially by newer fans. Um, they're all out there now on, on, on BritBox. So subscribers to that can, can check them out. But, um, yeah, I, I think, I think it's Hartnell. He's the one who gets, gets sort of, sort of overlooked. Um, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting, it's an interesting question that I could get into much more deeply. And, and the return of the series, um, you know, back in 2005 complicates things even more. I think the most underrated modern Doctor Who, um, oh gosh, I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm anytime you, you venture an opinion on modern Doctor Who people, people get agitated. So, um, I'm not sure if any of the modern doctors are, are, legit underrated in a strict sense. Okay. Next question we've got, um, on, on Facebook, um, Joey has several, uh, what got you interested in UFO research? Okay. Um, I think there's a couple of things I can point to as, as sort of starting points that, uh, that sort of triggered interest. Um, one is, uh, like, like many people of of my age, sort of actually pretty much the second early second half of the Gen X generation, um, I've watched a lot of old In Search of reruns as a kid, and so In Search of um, did a number of UFO stories, and those always seemed to uh, intrigue me more than than Bigfoot or the Bermuda Triangle or historical mysteries or anything like that. So in search of sort of sparked interest, there were some great kids books. Uh, a guy named Daniel Cohen wrote a lot of interesting nonfiction kids books about UFOs and the, the paranormal and ghosts and things like that. Those books got me into it. Um, in high school, I, I sort of gravitated towards the UFO section of the library, I'd, I'd find issues of Omni magazine that talked about it. Um, and then the X-Files and then discovering the internet or the internet sort of becoming a thing that I could, uh, that I could access. Um, that was sort of the, the progression. Uh, it wasn't Art Bell. Art Bell wasn't broadcast anywhere where I lived, um, during that time. And actually he wasn't really sort of doing his thing until I was in high school and college and I didn't and I still didn't live anywhere where I could listen to him. Um in college I think once they started broadcasting on the internet, I think I caught some Jeff Rents interviews with like Stanton Friedman and and uh people like that uh, b- before Rents's show went the direction it did. Um okay, so next question from Joey, have you ever met any of the subjects of of your podcasts? Um I did meet Stanton Friedman uh, once. I think probably his one of his last appearances in Halifax, um, an event uh, put on by Paul Kimball. We both spoke at back in I want to say 20, 2017. 
So and I, I think Friedman's work had appeared in various episodes. How could it not? Um, uh, there's one that I saw but avoided eye contact with, and that was Cosmic Ray. Um, if you've heard the episode on uh, the Mitchell sisters that I did, um, and then I think subsequently uh, some correspondence from uh, from Cosmic Ray about how I, uh, I, I, I was not kind about Cosmic Ray's work. Um, he was at the Ohio MUFON convention selling books uh, last summer when I went. And um, I, I was just like, I thought about, should I say something to him? I was like, no, no, I'm not a confrontation person. I'm not going, I'm not going to do that. So those two, those two sort of, sort of jump out. Um, I, I haven't done a huge number of episodes about people still living or still active. Um, so that's limited who I've, uh, who I've met. Uh, last question from Joey is great lakes lore coming back. Uh, no, I don't believe so. Um, Samantha and I are both, uh, I think we initially underestimated the, the amount of time that goes into doing a, a research heavy show, um, trying to coordinate schedules for recording with work and, Real life things got um, got very difficult, um, and 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 I'm I've got my hands full doing doing one podcast. So um, I'm very proud of the year that we did, and it was it was fun. But boy, was it um, was it was it work? Was it work? Working with other people is is difficult to coordinate sometimes um, especially with with schedules and recording and things like that I mean I can I can record this show anytime I want pretty much but uh, when you're when you're collaborating with somebody who's got a different schedule than you that can be very challenging and the um, the, the challenges and just the the scheduling and the the workload was 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 pretty pretty massive Um so on Facebook, AJ says, is there any case that you think is 100% real? Ooh, 100% real. Um, 100%. That's a, that's a, that's a big ask. Um, and, uh, what do we mean by real? Is it really what the person claimed it was, or was it a real thing that happened, but their interpretation might be, might be iffy. Um, hundred percent real I think um, the uh, oh trying to remember the name the Charles witted um, case the the airliner back in the 50s that was sort of buzzed by a UFO um, I think that one was a legit thing that happened I don't know what the explanation might be but I that one always struck me as as very legit I um, I think, as I said earlier, I think Orfeo Angelucci was um, was sincere, and I think something happened to him. Was it an alien visitation? I don't know if there's any way to know that for sure, but I I feel the sincerity from him on on that hundred percent real. That's a that is a that is a high bar, even before we get into nitpicking the definition of um, of real. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fandom following on Instagram asks, has there ever been evidence in quotes recorded about the late 1800s Aurora airship case outside of the newspaper and eyewitness reports? I'm wondering if anybody ever claimed to have saved parts or even drawings or pictures of the alien or ship. 
Not that I'm aware of. I am open to being updated and enlightened on this uh, from the uh, from the listener base out there. But um, no, I'm not aware of any uh, <laughs> meta materials or uh, or anything like that or, or daguerreotypes that uh, that people might have might have made of the the craft or the um, occupant. Um, I'm not. It would be really cool if somebody did. I think. So. Oh, I can't remember. Now that I think about it, I think somebody did and it was pretty quickly debunked, but I'm going to have to plead ignorance on this one. Uh, Michael on Twitter says, have you enjoyed anything on TV lately? Silo was a highlight for me on also a delightful British comedy called The Change plus reruns of classic sketch show Big Train. Um, I've not heard of Big Chain, Big Train or The Change. Um, Silo is one of those on Apple TV Plus that I was um, fully planning on checking out at uh, at some point. I think recently on TV or, or streaming, I think um, one of the most interesting things I've seen, uh, we watched the, uh, the documentary Shiny Happy People about the Duggar family and Bill Gothard and that whole sort of extremist fundamentalist wing of things. That was, that was pretty interesting. Um, I think, um, oh, uh, I'm really enjoying the second season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Um, I, I, I've been sort of lukewarm on most of the new Trek coming out of Paramount Plus, but I thought the third season of Picard was better than the first two seasons of Picard. Uh, it turns into a sort of nostalgia fest, but um, I thought third season of Picard was pretty good. And I think Strange New Worlds is, is the closest thing to being uh, the, the things I like most about Star Trek. I don't dislike Discovery at all. Um, it's just often not my thing. I, I thought the last few seasons have been better than that. I did not like the first season at all. Um, I have not seen Star Trek Prodigy, the uh, sort of co-production or whatever with Nickelodeon, the sort of kids show. Uh, heard good things about it. I do like uh, Lower Decks, the cartoon. Um, I think that's very funny. Loads of in-jokes for, uh, for longtime fans. Other things on television. Oh, gosh. Those are the things that sort of jump out at me. Um, oh, I'm a wrestling fan. The new season of dark side of the ring on vice has been, uh, has been pretty good. Um, I've been really in a, a sort of have old stuff on in the background mode lately. So, um, so I need to, I need to start watching some new stuff again, but, uh, yeah, maybe I'll check out silo, uh, the, the sort of Apple TV model of you get an episode a week rather than the Netflix model of dropping it all at once kind of makes it so I, I don't, start these things until they've got kind of a big sort of inventory built up. Oh, um, it's not incredibly recently, but uh, speaking of Apple TV, Slow Horses uh, with Gary Oldman um, based on the uh, the novels by Mick Herron are wonderful. There's two, uh, two series of it out now. And a third one is, is in production, I believe. So uh, if you like sort of realistic, spy stuff that is is humorous but thrilling and good and um entertaining but not dumb slow horses is is really good 
Tim from Twitter again uh, with another question. I see you post pictures of the saucer supper on the regular. Have you never heard of tacos? <laughs> um, I've done nachos a bit. Um, so yeah, the the saucer supper thing that started off as um, for Christmas. Gosh, oh gosh, I guess it was Christmas of 2019. I uh, I, I told the saucer wife that I was going to take care of, of dinner on Sunday nights. Um, and she was thrilled with that because she likes cooking, but she hates planning meals. She she really doesn't like that part of it. So this was, you know, a meal she wouldn't have to plan. And it was and, – and then, you know, COVID hit and suddenly I had a lot more time on my hands. So I was like, oh, this is really, really fun. I'm going to make different things. And then it turned into me putting pictures up on um, – on Instagram and, and, and social media and, and stuff and branding it for the show, but it didn't start off as, um, as a thing for the show. Um, I, I tend to try to do things that uh, I try to do things that I don't normally do. There are some favorites that are pretty constant in the rotation, but, um, actually tacos is, uh, as, as is a good idea. I should do something with, uh, with, with tacos soon. That sounds that sounds fun. Um, oh, maybe some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tacos. Yeah, I, I need an idea for tomorrow night. So thank you, Tim. Um, next question. It's another Tim, friend of the show, Tim Benal. Is there an American location of saucer lore that you'd like to visit that you haven't seen yet? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um I would love to get up to New England, uh, to Exeter and to, um, where Betty and Barney Hill had their encounter and, and drive that, uh, that highway. There's all the Nevada stuff near area 51 and the alien highway that I, I haven't seen a lot of stuff out West. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's really the place I need to go next. I just, I live too far East for it to be a, a practical thing to do, um, just for flying saucer purposes. Um, California. Oh gosh. All of the, all of the contacty places. I want to go to desert center and I want to try to find where, um, Orfu Angelucci was driving, uh, when he had his encounters and, and, and things like that. Uh, probably the biggest one, um, Mount Shasta, would really like to get out to uh, to Mount Shasta. So much, uh, so much stuff in the lore, going all the way back to um, Guy Ballard and the uh, the I M stuff. Uh, Pascagoula would be ah, no no reason to go down to Pascagoula, so it would have to be a a special trip. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So quite quite a few quite a few places. Um, Go to Chicago and see where Mothman was seen. Just kidding. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, lots of places on the uh, the, the saucer travel list. Um, oh, Carl on uh, on Facebook asks, "What is the one UFO story you wish you could open the snark hose on full?" Um, oh, that's a that's a good one. Um, that that's a good one. A lot of the Big ones don't interest me enough to, to really just sort of cut loose. I don't care about them uh, that much. I, I I can't bring myself to care about Roswell. I, I I can't stand it, and it's it's so well known. But I I, I will say that um, 
uh, every time somebody asks if I would do a Whitley Strieber episode, I, I think about it and then I, I backtrack because, and, and, and demure because I, um, I, I just I don't like Whitley Strieber's stuff. I, Communion was, of course, seminal, and, and then he just kept going and going and going, and and developed a, a gimmick of being Whitley Strieber. And um, I, I I don't like listening to him. I don't like reading his stuff. Um, I. I, I think there's some really interesting critiques of him out there. Uh, there's, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember what it's called. And I've, I, I don't think I read the whole thing, but there was this like hundred some page PDF about his book, The Key and discrepancies between the first and second editions. That was really, really interesting. Um, and, and sort of Strieber's stories about why the key had been changed and, and, and things like that. But I, I just, I just don't like Whitley Strieber. I, I've never met him as a person. Um, I've never met him personally. This isn't a personal thing. I don't like Whitley Strieber's work. I, I, I don't find it interesting and things about it annoy me, but, um, but he's got his fans and his fans tend to come out of the wood, woodwork and be really irritating when you criticize Whitley Strieber. So, but yeah, Strieber, um, yeah, Strieber. Okay. Um, Ali, uh, Ali Jr. says, not a question, but thought you might appreciate this piece about abductee Will Jima's records. Uh, that is interesting. I will put that in the, um, in the link. It's too much to discuss here as we are closing in on, um, on an hour. And actually we're at an hour and we are about, we are about halfway. So I think this is a good place to um to pause for this episode we'll pick it up next time um with the other half of the questions in the meantime if you've if you've got additional questions or you've got follow-up questions send them my way um and we'll uh we'll keep this going actually doing this in two parts works out pretty well because we're going on vacation and um yeah so and 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 and, an hour is a good length i think an hour is a good length for um for everybody's benefit. So yeah, we'll pick this up next time. Thank you for listening. Remember to send in more questions, follow-up questions, new questions via the usual channels, and I'll work them into the second part of this, uh, of this Q and a sequence. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people, except for Whitley Strieber. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. Mm-hmm.